But we come to, he, uh, to Acts chapter 12, and uh, God's been doing a lot of amazing things in the early church, and we've been studying that, and we've been seeing the faithfulness of God's people amidst times of great triumph and also times of great tragedy and, and trial. And as a result of that, uh, God has been expanding the kingdom uh, here on earth. And he's been expanding it not only to Jews, but Gentiles alike, not only in Jerusalem, but now to the uttermost parts of the world. And we come to a text this morning that reminds us of one very important truth that, quite frankly, each and every one of us needs to tattoo somewhere on our body. So we never forget it. We need to put it on our fridges. We need to put it on our mirrors in our bathrooms. We need to make it the desktop picture on all of our devices. And that phrase or that theological um, idea is that God is in control. Amen? We need to remember that. And the reason why we need to remember it and put it wherever we can is because when we live in this world, everything, and when I mean everything, I mean everything in this world tells us otherwise. We look at the world, whether it's in our own circumstances and, and lives, the coming and going of, uh, of, of our daily rituals, we see many times a world that seemingly is out of control. When we look at the geopolitical uh, world around us, we recognize that seemingly at any point this world could fall apart. We live in a place that seemingly at times is out of control, but I'm here to tell you that we are reminded over and over and over again in Scripture that God is in control. And he has his hands firmly on the steering wheel, and he did in Acts chapter 12, and he does today in the year 2018, and some of you feel right now that your life is completely out of control. But I'm here to tell you today that no matter what you're dealing with, God is in control. And we should have great peace about that. And that should bring us great joy. And that should take away all fear and anxiety that we have. Because we have a loving, heavenly Father who has done all that we needed Him to do. And He reminds us that as we wake up to a new day, that all the details of the event will not surprise Him. They will not go by his desk without him giving some a level of approval to the things that come our way and because of that we can have confidence that God will get us through the day because he is in control. Now why is that such an important thing? Well in Acts chapter 12 we are going to see not the good, the bad, and the ugly but we're going to start with the ugly, the bad, and then we're going to end up with the good. Okay? And amidst whatever circumstances were going on in Acts chapter 12 the overarching theme that the church understood in the book of Acts was that God was in control and it allowed them to do things. It allowed them to face death when their time had been called. It allowed them to have confidence to be able to sleep in a prison knowing that the executioner was coming. It allowed the church to pray in such a way knowing that because God is in control, he can take care of anything that worries us in the present day. It would allow uh, even a great and powerful king to recognize he is a small, small figure in the hands of the Almighty. God is in control. And this morning we're going to see how that theme, how that theological premise drove the early church. And my prayer is that that idea will permeate our hearts and minds, that it will settle our anxious thoughts, that it will allow us to be able to look to a new day and a new week of surprises and troubles and difficulties and it will allow us to, uh, with confidence, know that we serve a God who knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end, and he's a part of it every step of the way. So with that, let's look at Acts chapter 12 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can find a Bible in the pew rack or in the chairs where you're sitting, and you can find our passage on page 920. 
And we've got a lot to deal with. There's really three episodes, if you will, that are going on uh, in our text. And we're going to address all of them and see this control that God has and how he's working all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we're going to see that over and over again. And we may not always be happy as to how that gets fleshed out. But let's look at Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the doors were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when he went out and followed him, he did not know what he what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to an iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many of them were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter kept knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, that they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food, on an appointed day Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God glory. And he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. Aren't you glad you came to church on Sunday? But here's how it finishes. But the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we are thankful for the record of history of what took place in your church so that it might serve as an example to each and every one of us. Lord, thank you for the faithfulness amidst very difficult times and even in times of triumph. May we model that same type of obedience, not only to our fellow believers, but also to the unbelievers in our midst and in the lives that we live. Teach us what you would have for us. And Lord, we are so very thankful that you are the God who is in control. 
and that you have it all figured out and you have a plan that cannot be thwarted. Let us live in light of that with that confidence that we may take on whatever you allow into our lives, even this week. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, Acts chapter 12 is a great time marker for us. Luke begins uh, this chapter by telling us about that time. And we've got to stop there and we've got to say about what time, Luke? What's, what's going on? And, and the way that uh, time was kept back then, of course, had a lot to do with who was leading the country. Very similar to how we would talk about maybe not remembering the particular year that something took place. It's not hard for us to say, well, so-and-so was president at the time. And so Luke tells us that Herod is the leader, is the king in Israel. And right away we say, well, my goodness, how old is Herod? Herod's been around for a long, long time. All throughout the New Testament, we hear Herod, Herod, and Herod, okay? So this guy's 353 years old, right? No, there are six different Herods that are spoken about in the New Testament. And, and I want to just kind of walk through them very quickly for you so that you recognize and know, number one, which Herod we're talking about. And then once we know which Herod we're talking about, we can define what the time is. And we're able to lock it in to the very year. Now, the first Herod that you need to know about is Herod the Great. This is Christmas Herod, right? This is the Herod that said he wanted to worship Jesus. And uh, it was a lie when the wise men came from the east. He wanted to kill Jesus. In fact, he sets out a decree that all the boy babies in Judea under the age of two would be put to death. And an angel speaks to uh, Joseph and Joseph and Mary and Jesus head to Egypt to keep safe and away from the wrath of this Herod. And this Herod ruled for quite a bit of time. But after he was done ruling, another uh, Herod came to existence. Uh, That Herod was Herod um, Antipas. Herod Antipas came after the birth of Christ. This Herod is the one who beheads John the Baptist, okay? He's the one who uh, is uh, the one who oversees the trial of Jesus uh, at the time of uh, Good Friday and, and Easter. And then there's Herod Arculus. Herod Arculus uh, didn't, didn't rule for very long. He could have been Herod the Short, right? Because he didn't stay very long. He was cruel and he was ineffective and nobody liked him. It was said not even his mom liked him, all right? And so he didn't rule for very long, just for a couple years. And while the Bible makes mention of him, there's no major significant events that take place during Herod Arculus's time. And then there's another Herod. There's a split in the Herod dynasty where uh, a Herod is given rulership or governorship over the northern part of Israel for uh, a set of about uh, two decades. His name is Herod Philip. And Herod Philip had a, a uh, infatuation with trying to, if you will, uh, cozy up with the Roman officials. And he had a desire to create a city that talked about the merging of Roman life and Jewish life. And he came up with a wonderful name because of the ruler of Rome being Caesar and his name being Philip. You know that name if you've been around the Bible for a while. It's the town of Caesarea. Philippi, all right? And so what better thing to do? You're in a leader within a, in a nation. Why not name a city after you? And, and just to make sure that your upper management is okay with it, add the Caesar's name to it, Caesarea Philippi. And then we have after Herod Philip, we have what we have first is Herod Agrippa I. This is the Herod who we're talking about. Herod Agrippa I is Acts chapter 12 Herod. He's the grandson of the Christmas Herod, okay? And so this guy knows what it's like to live lives of treachery, to have murderous actions as a part of his rule. He knows and and was fully aware of some of the stories of what his grandfather and his father had done. Later on, next fall, we'll hear about another Herod. That's Herod Agrippa II. This is the one who Paul talks about on his journeys uh, in, in missionary trips that go on. He will come into contact with Herod Agrippa II, the son of this Herod Agrippa I. 
So once we recognize who the Herod is, about that time, you can pinpoint right in your Bible somewhere, this is A.D. 44. And here's why we know multiple secular historians tell us that Herod Agrippa died 44 years um, uh, after the death of Jesus Christ. So what that means is, is that way we do time, this is about 11 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how that works from a time standpoint. And 11 years, now the church has been going strong without Jesus. For 11 years, the disciples have done exactly what Jesus has called them to do with regards to the Great Commission. They've not watered down the gospel. They've not given up on the gospel. They are preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and for those 11 years, there were times of great triumph. And in those 11 years, there were times of great difficulty. And within this text, what we see are five things that I want to draw for you this morning. Five what I think are indispensable truths for us as a believer to recognize under the heading that God is in control. And so the first thing that I want you to see this morning as we look through this text is that we, as Christians, can experience trials that are unbearable that we can experience trials that are unbearable. In in verse 1, we are told Herod, Agrippa I, is the one who is leading, the one who is ruling over Israel. And we are told that the king lays violent hands on some who belong to the church. Now, the practice had been that persecution was something that the church had known. But up to this point, persecution always involved the followers of Jesus, not the leaders. I'm sorry, the followers of Jesus, not the leaders of the church. And so uh, the apostles have spent their time in Jerusalem and seemingly untouched. And one of the reasons why they were probably untouched is that the ruling officials wanted to start thwarting Christianity, but they recognized if they kill the leaders, a martyr could be made, and now you've got another Jesus movement going on. They remembered and they knew we killed Jesus and this movement only grew. So our job is is to kind of pick off follower one at a time, make their life difficult, and the uh, as, as they die, the movement will die as well. Well, that didn't happen. As followers are being picked off one by one, as they're being imprisoned, as they're being harassed, the movement continues to grow. And Herod says, listen, enough is enough. I- I'm tired of dealing with this. I'm going to go after the rulers or the leaders of this movement. And notice what the text says. He kills James by the sword. He's beheaded. He takes him into custody. There's no mention of any kind of trial. There's no mention of any kind of due process along the way. He's just killed. And in that moment, it is quite amazing that Luke wouldn't say anything more about the subject. Now, this uh, James was one of Jesus' three closest companions. There was Peter, there was James, and there was John. James and John were the sons of thunder. James and John were seemingly these passionate young men whom God had discipled, who had, he had taken and made something extraordinary about them. These guys had awesome faith. This, his brother John, this James, his brother John would be the great revelator who would write the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation, and of course, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This James was a leader from the beginning of Christianity, and now he's dead. I wonder if Luke doesn't write anything about it, because it just seemingly is too hard to even speak of. In that moment, the very mention of James dying would have brought tears to the eyes of every believer, and would have brought great sorrow to the church. James, one of the great leaders of the church and one of the great leaders of all of Christian history, is dead by the sword. Now we stop there and we read through that as if, you know, he died, let's move on. But let's recognize what it must have done to the church. 
The faith of the church must have been shaken. And now we're told, as verses go forward, that the other leader of the church, Peter, has now been taken and brought into prison. And the only reason why he's alive right now is Passover is about to take place. And, and the Jewish leaders know you can't go around beheading people when a, when a festival is taking place. That's just not good etiquette, right? And so they wait. And so the church now sees two of its key leaders who have been leading the entire way since Jesus has been gone. One is dead and another one is in prison. Now I want to stop there for a moment and I want to speak to us just for a minute. Because what we do with the Bible at times is downright just brutal. Because we take verses of the Bible, and we take them and we use them as mantles, and I I might even say as pacifiers to make us feel good about ourselves. And in this passage, we see unbearable circumstances. We see a man lose his head and die. We see another man who has been faithful to the Lord in prison, waiting for uh, his execution. These are moments that seemingly must have been unbearable for these men and for these women. Then you have the church saying, when is our time going to come? With every knock at the door, with every suspicious looking person looking at you in the marketplace, your fear, your anxiety rises up. Could they take hold of me? Could they imprison me? Will they kill me? Talk about an unbearable time to live. But what we do as Christians in our rose-colored American culture is we grab scriptures and we say, well, that won't ever happen to me. And then we endorse it with a scripture uh, from God's word. And the scripture that I want to talk about this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No test has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted or tested beyond your ability or beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now right away we take that passage and without doing any kind of study, without doing any kind of context to it, what we say as American Christians is, hey, what God has said is he'll never give me something more than I can bear. Okay? Uh, Just think about this for a moment. James is kneeled down in front of uh, the swordsmen. And he's sitting there saying, I know Paul hasn't written this yet, but one day he's going to write, God's not going to give me more than I can bear. God's not going to give me more more than I can bear. Baloney. Your head's going to be chopped off. That's more than you can bear, right? And so what I want you to recognize is, 1 Corinthians uh, 10.13 doesn't mean that horrific things will not happen to you. My goodness, we don't have to look very far in even our world today to see Christians being uh, cut down left and right for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we in our American culture find ourselves trying to make ourselves feel better that I'll be able to endure everything. Well, understand just a couple things, and I'm not going to do an exposition of 1 Corinthians 10.13, that's not my purpose, but a couple things that I want you to think about. Number one... The word test there is probably better translated temptation. Test and temptation are similar, is one word in the Greek language, and it's used interchangeably, and so context is key. What, what Paul is talking about in the context seemingly is no temptation can overtake you. What that means is, is that you cannot be tempted so much that you can stand before God and say, I couldn't do anything about it. It was so overwhelming, it was so big, it was so tempting that I had no other choice but to sin. God will hit the buzzer and go, bang, wrong, because no temptation has overcome you. You and I have the power through the Holy Spirit of God to be able to push away any temptation. And God says, I'll doubly help you in that. Not only will you be able to stand up against any temptation, but I promise you there is always a way of escape from the temptation that comes. Now listen, 
There wasn't a way of escape from the trial that James faced. The trial ended his life. But temptation, we are always given a way of escape. That means the devil, when he tempts us, can't corner us to a place that we are uh, so cornered that we can't get out of it. God always says there's a back door. The next thing we need to recognize as we look at a passage, because we've got to bring this into context. James dies, and we're not given anything more than we can bear. How do we balance those two things? Is we need to recognize who is the you in the text. Y-O-U. Who is the you that Paul is talking about? And what that means is, there's a certain criteria for you to be able to endure. And so you just can't uh, broad brush this thing and say every person is not going to be given something that they're not going to bear. There's a specific criteria by which that promise is going to be lived out. Thirdly, what does the phrase uh, that you will uh, be able to bear it, you'll be able to handle it, uh, some translations give? What does it mean when it says handle? Will I never stumble? Will I fail? Or will I always have an A on every one of my trials? Will I pass the test? That's not what it means. What Paul is saying is, number one, I believe he's talking about temptation. Number two, I believe he's saying, if we live according to God's perfect will and purpose, God will give us in a time of temptation the ability to handle it. Now, what does that mean for us with regards to trials? You and I are not exempt from horrific trials coming our way. Trials so bad. Trials so heinous, trials so difficult that you throw up your hands, humanly speaking, and say, I I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I'm not sure if I'll ever get out of this. And here's the reason why. Because you may not. You may not. Now you say, what a terrible sermon. I mean, there's no hope, right? That God will allow horrific and unbearable trials to come to our life? Yes, and we've experienced them, right? We've experienced horrific medical reports. We've experienced horrific uh, news of of people that have lost their life for, for all manner of things. Unbearable situations. What is God's word to us in those days? Well, number one... We are told that when we face issues like this in other parts of the scripture, there's a promise that we have. And the promise is, and in those moments, when James is kneeled down before his executioner, Peter, who's about to be in prison, tells the church later on that when we experience trials of many kinds and situations that seemingly, from a human standpoint, are utterly unbearable, that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In those moments, when we turn to the Lord, in those unbearable moments of life, God says, I will transcend any human thinking or any human reason, and I will give you peace. That's why, by the way, Peter, who knows James is dead, who knows he's about to die, is sleeping so soundly that an angel of the Lord has to kick him, has to arouse him up from his slumber. How could a man who's about to die be sleeping, right? I would be pacing. I would be wide awake. Except that the peace of the Lord transcends all understanding. And it guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Another thing that we need to remember is that because we are susceptible to unbearable situations, God has given us partners in those moments. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to bear one another's burdens. Why would we have to bear one another's burdens? Because the friend or the individual or maybe you yourself are bearing a burden that you cannot bear. You're carrying a weight that's so heavy that by yourself you are unable to carry it. And God has said and God has given in his love brothers and sisters in Christ who come along and pick up that burden with you knowing that it is too much for you to bear. And so in moments of unbearable situations, we go to the Lord and we ask for his peace. 
peace amidst the circumstances, not always the peace to get out of the circumstances, but the peace amidst the storm, and partners in ministry to come along and carry the load along the way because it's too much for us to carry. James is dead and Peter's in prison. Unbearable moments, and while we live in the comfort of liberty and justice for all, we need to recognize that that does not make us immune to unbearable moments as well. Point number two, prayer must be constant because we are unable. Notice in verses three through five, James is dead, Peter's in prison, what does the church do? Now I want you to notice in the text, the church took up a petition and uh, they started lobbying their politicians, right? Notice in the text, what happened was, is they uh, gathered all the other churches around and, and started picketing and boycotting uh, anything that had Herod's name on it, right? Notice in verses 3 through 5, what the church does. Having been seized and Peter being put in prison... What does the church do? Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, why would the church go to prayer? Now, we're not told, by the way, how they prayed. In fact, I'll be just quite honest with you. The Bible doesn't usually give us a lot of how-tos with regards to prayer. It, It tells us that people prayed. It even records some prayers which give us a, 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 a viewpoint or a, a, a picture of what prayer should look like. But all we're told is one modifier to their prayer. Fervent prayer was made. Fervent prayer, persistent prayer, passionate prayer. But I want you to notice that they start praying. And they start praying seemingly for Peter. Peter's in prison. Now... When Peter is released later on in the text, they don't believe that he could have been released. Which tells me that they were praying for something short of Peter's release, right? Lord, we pray that you will keep Peter calm in the prison. Lord, we pray that uh, Peter won't be so worked up while in prison. Lord, please take care of Peter while he's in prison. Lord, give him the peace of God, which transcends all understanding while he's in prison. It seems odd that when he is released, they don't believe it in the first place. They think that it's a greater opportunity or greater probability, let me say, that it's Peter's ghost than the Peter would have been released. So here's what I want you to know about prayer. You don't have to pray perfectly for God to answer your prayer, but you need to pray persistently. And what that means is, is that we get this idea, and I hear it from so many people, I, I want to pray, but I, I, I just want to be really careful that I don't pray the wrong way. That's like saying, you know, I want to breathe, but I don't want to breathe the wrong way. Because I might screw it up, right? No, just breathe. Just pray. We need to be people of prayer. And there's no real organization to the idea of prayer. Number one, it's to God. It's communicating to God. And it's communicating to God a particular issue. What's the issue? Peter's in trouble, God. And I'm not sure what to pray for. But I know, God, you are able and we are not. There are 16 soldiers overseeing Peter. And we as a church, we're not very good in special ops. So, Lord, you're our special ops guy. You're going to have to come through. And the only way we know how to address you is through prayer. And so they persistently and they passionately take a particular request and they lift it up to the Lord. We need to do this more as a church. We need to take specific prayers. And we need to make it our focus and our purpose not to pray just for endurance amidst the situation, but for God to actually answer the prayer that would take care of the situation altogether. Lord, do something to release Peter from prison. That's what we're praying for. That's what we want. And we need to be praying that over and over again, not for one week, 
Not we're one shot at it and then, well, God didn't do it. But we pray and we pray and we pray. Even to the point, listen, we're praying as God answers the prayer. They are still praying and Peter's knocking at the door. We need to pray and our prayers need to be constant because we are unable to accomplish things, but God is totally able to address them. And that's what he does. Notice the third principle. God does things that are unbelievable. Verses 4 through 6. Peter's in prison. And Herod's like, you know what? Listen, I am so tired of hearing that Christians go into prison and then all of a sudden they're out. Let's talk about Jesus for a moment. We, man, he was, he was dead. Or at least we thought he was dead, Herod says. The Romans are taking care of him, and then all of a sudden, he's gone on the, on the third day. Something happened. And then in Acts chapter 5, Peter and John are preaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. They're flogged and put into prison. And then they come back the next day, and they're gone. Herod's like, listen, I am tired of Christians escaping. So I'm going to put 16 soldiers, four sets of four around him. Notice, I'm going to chain two soldiers on one of each of the sides of Peter. This guy isn't going to be able to move. But notice what the scripture says. We're told on the night that he is about, the next morning he's going to be executed after Passover is done. An angel of the Lord stands next to him. And I want you to notice that what Luke wants to articulate is God is totally active in this and man is totally passive in it. Notice, God's the one doing the work. The angel of the Lord comes in. A light shines. Peter sleeps. So he's got to strike Peter. Uh, Parents, take the picture of you waking up your teenager this morning. You did an angelic work. Okay? So he strikes Peter. We aren't told how he struck him. I wonder if he kicked him. I wonder what he did. Peter gets up. He wakes up. Get up quickly. Chains fall off. The angel says to him, dress yourself. And don't forget your sandals. Remember, there are two soldiers next to him. If you were doing a release, you'd be like, let's go. Let's not worry about it. You're not looking your best, but that's okay. The angel says, hey, don't forget the Birkenstocks. Okay? Hey, and I mean, you know, tie them or whatever you do, buckle them, whatever you do with Birkenstocks, okay? Put your clothes on. And they walk through and and go through. Oh, by the way, it's kind of cold outside. Grab your jackets, he says. Grab your cloak and put it about you and then follow me. He goes out and he follows him. And he doesn't even know what's being done until he's outside the jail. God is at work and we are just following along. God is doing these unbelievable things. And he takes us in prison, Peter, and he walks him out of the prison. And then when he gets to the street, Peter recognizes, wait a minute, something amazing's just taken place. I'm not in prison anymore. I'm going to go to Mary's house, and I'm going to tell all of them, I have been released. Now, God still does amazing things like this. God still does miraculous things like this. Now, it doesn't happen very often because we call those types of things miracles, right? If they happened every day, they wouldn't be so miraculous, But why does God do unbelievable things? I think there are two reasons, write these down, why God would have done something like this. I don't think it is so God can say, wow, I've really gotten good at prison breaks and I want to show you how I've done it, okay? I think he does it for two reasons. I think number one, he does it to unnerve, to unnerve the unbeliever. Think about the soldiers when they come to and Peter ain't there. That had to be unnerving, right? Where did he go? Why isn't he here? What happened? How could he have gotten through all of it? How could he have gotten through an iron gate? How could he have gone through his prison cell? How could he have gotten past the sentries at the door? How could he have gotten away? How could he have put on his Birkenstocks and us not know it? There's something about this Peter that is different than any other soldier, I'm sorry, every other prisoner we as soldiers have uh, overseen or had in custody. 
It unnerves them. And I want you to know we need to be often telling, not just believers, but unbelievers, what God is doing because it needs to unnerve the unbelievers around us. Wait a minute, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. I still don't know if I believe in God, but that's, that's pretty amazing. I'm not sure what to do with that. It should cause the unbeliever pause. The second thing that it does is it unnerves the unbelievers. It should undergird the believers. So James is dead, and Peter's in prison. And they're huddled together. And i got to imagine that there's fear and trepidation. They're they're human, right? What's going to happen to us next? And Peter knocks at the door. And then finally, after that whole hubbubaloo of him knocking and nobody answering, they finally see Peter in their midst, and they say that they break out in an exclamation so much that Peter's got to quiet him down because he's going to wake the neighbors, right? And so... They see Peter right before them. Now, i got to imagine they had lost some confidence in God with regards to the death of James. They felt a little more mortal than the movement had been up to this point. But now seeing Peter, they are reminded of the power of God. They are reminded of the plan of God. They are reminded of the mighty acts that God is able to do. And that should bring courage, and that should bring confidence, and that should bring a a settled nature to the believer. And it should for us as well. We need to be open to what God is doing because it gives us courage, and it gives us affirmation that God is at work. One of the ways that we saw this happen years ago in our church was we, we had a, a rickety old uh, pole barn as uh, our old sanctuary before we built this, and it had become our, kind of our, our uh, classroom building, and it was just beyond where the foyer's at. And uh, every time we would talk about m- removing that building and building something bigger, the city of Sugar Grove would tell us, listen, your property has all kinds of issues. It's impossible for you to add on. And the church is growing and growing and growing, and, and we've got issues. And one of the issues was is we were not hooked up to a water supply. We had a well here, and we had a septic uh, field and all of that. And we could not hook up to the village's water. It was on the other side uh, of Bliss Road, and it was going to cost a huge amount of money to do it, far more money than we we had uh, and were even willing to spend if we did have it. And so we really believed God was calling us to maybe move, and we looked at other properties around. We couldn't find anything. Uh, everything was so expensive, and it was like, God, you must not be in this. You must not want this to happen. And then one Sunday, as church was letting out, a bunch of pickup trucks were in our parking lot. And they uh, were from the Water Reclamation District. And they came up to one of our secretaries and said, we want to talk to some of the people who are in charge. We have a proposal for them. And the proposal was, can you believe it, uh, that they wanted to bring water supply through our property to get it to Wabansi College. And they said, the only property that we can do that through is your property. And if you, if you will give us a 10 foot easement along the property line by the woods, uh, we will give you free water hookup and we will take care of all of that, uh, and, uh, it will all be, uh, free of charge. Well, problem eradicated. Right? Okay. So they do the work, and if you were around here, they, they, man, it was a mess. They're digging this huge ravine and, and putting in big pipes and all of that. And uh, they had told us in the proposal that they would uh, replace whatever they beat up on our uh, parking lot. At the end of it, they get done, and they said, you know what? We just don't feel right in how we did all that. We, we dug up pretty good. We're going to redo your entire parking lot free of charge. Can I tell you something? That's a miracle, right? Right? And so now we have a building. I want you to know, we didn't have another idea. We didn't have another plan. And that building that now is housing all of those kids right now in ministries is because God found a way where there seemingly was no way. God does unbelievable things. And we need to remember that because it affirms for us that God is with us in this process. Fourth one, we got to get moving here. The fourth thing that we need to recognize is 
As we look at this text, God's judgment is unpredictable and unimaginable. Let's just be realistic here. It does not seem fair that James dies and Peter lives, right? How many ask that question? How many wonder, maybe I'm the only one, how many wonder if James got to heaven and is watching the angel of the Lord come down to Peter's prison cell, and he's like, well, you're going to be released. I got to wonder, maybe it's the middle child in me. I got to wonder if James is like, really? Are you kidding me, God? I lost my head for you. And Peter, I mean, my goodness, you're going to let him out scot-free? Come on. Now, I know some of you real hard-nosed theologians are like, yeah, they don't do that in heaven. But I got to imagine, humanly speaking, that ain't fair, God. I die, he lives? That don't seem right. And yet that's exactly what happens. And I want you to know this morning that there are times where you will be a James enduring hard, unbearable things and other Christians, God's doing miracles. And I want you to know God is still good. And God is still right. And God is still just. And so when you're the James in the situation, and everybody else around you is the Peter, a couple things I want you to recognize. When God's judgment seems unpredictable, number one, don't complain. Don't complain. Oh, I struggle with this. When hardships are going on, and everybody else seems to be doing well, especially when unbelievers are doing well, oh, I don't like that. And I complain. Second, don't critique. God, your plan stinks. God, your plan doesn't make any sense at all. This is a dumb plan. I'm going to do my own plan. But in those moments when God's judgment seemingly is unpredictable, stay faithful and committed. God, I don't know why you've made me a James. I don't know why at every turn trials and tribulations are following me. I don't know why I'm the Job in 2018. I don't know. But God, whether you give or whether you take away, whether I'm Peter, whether I'm James, blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen? We need to believe that and we need to own that and we don't need to critique, we don't need to complain, we don't need to compare, but God, you're doing this for them and you're not doing this for me. But we need to recognize that God, whether he allows our death or he allows our deliverance, he is worthy to be praised. God does amazing things, sometimes unpredictable, but also unimaginable, unimaginable as well. So we have in the text, Peter's been released. He's now in safety. And Herod searches after him, verse 19. Can't find him, so he goes back to the sentries, all 16 of them, hears their story, believes it's an inside job, and he kills them. He kills them. And you would think this guy's treachery has no end. It has no bounds to it. And notice now a second episode, or a third episode comes in the text. Herod's angry with people again. And uh, he's made this deal with a, a neighboring uh, area in uh, Acts 12.20. And he gives a speech. And his speech is pretty impressive speech. Now Josephus, the secular historian, was there in Jerusalem, supposedly. Because he writes a ton about this, way more than Luke does. And Josephus, who's not a follower of Jesus Christ or a Christian, says that when Josephus came out onto the royal palace where he was standing, the porch, he was wearing some uh, sequenced shirts, all right, straight out of the 70s, all right? And he's wearing it, and, and the sun uh, came at, at such an angle, Josephus says, that it caused his garments to shine like the noonday sun. And so as he's speaking, the people are blinded by this brilliant light, and their response, Josephus says, which is what Luke tells us, is they think they're being talked to by a God, not a man. And so they start announcing, you're a God, you're a God, you're a God, and right out of the uh, video clips of the ladies watching the Beatles or Elvis Presley, right? This is what's going on. You're awesome. 
Herod hears it and is like, you know what? You're right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am a God. Of which God says, no, you're not. In our study, by the way, in small group study, I, I, I'm the author of them, so I laugh at these things. I quoted Captain America from the Avengers movie. Where Captain America has said, well, hey, be careful, those guys are gods. And Captain America, with great theology, says, uh, my friend, there's one God and he doesn't dress like that. Okay? God don't dress like Herod Agrippa. And what happens? He's struck down. And he's eaten by worms. Yummy. Yummy, yummy. Okay? And what many historians believe, again, I'm working off of secular historians, they believe he had intestinal worms that brought him great pain. And within a matter of a couple days, Josephus says it takes five days. Luke says immediately. But Josephus says five days, he's dead. He's dead. This great man, this great leader who hated Christianity is dead. And I want you to notice something. Even the greatest, most powerful of leaders are pawns within the hand of an almighty God. And when they start thinking that they're greater than God, if they start thinking they're equal with God, God addresses it. He did it with Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament. He did it with Pharaoh in the Old Testament. And he's doing it with Herod here. And I want you to know something. He does it with every human heart that thinks that they are God instead of him. And so what we need to do, whether we're believers or unbelievers, is we need to respect God. We need to respect God. God has a place that nobody else can hold. And number two, when we allow our pride or our arrogance to start thinking we're in competition with God, we need to repent and do so quickly. Because the hand of the God is severe. The book of Hebrews says it's an awful thing. It's a terrifying thing. It's a Treach- uh, treacherous thing to fall in, or dreadful thing, I'm sorry, dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the Almighty God. And Herod sees it. And so God's judgments are unpredictable and they're unimaginable. He has a way at times of striking people dead. And we need to be in fear of that. Well, one final thing that we see, and I've got two minutes to do so, is that we see that God's mission, no matter the trouble, is unstoppable. After all this, James dies, Peter's in prison, Herod thinks he's God and is struck dead. What happens to the church? Luke tells us the word of God increased and multiplied. What a crazy chapter. At the end of it, God still is in charge, and not only is he in charge, but the church is on the move. No matter what God, whatever man can throw at us, what our rulers will do against us, Acts 12 gives us two amazing applications. God is in control, and because God is in control, we can have confidence that no matter what we face, not only is God with us, but God will give us what we need to endure that trial, even if it means our demise. And number two, that confidence should lead church because God is in control, because we're confident of that fact, because we've seen it in Acts chapter 12, we can be confident of it, and it should lead us to courage. Write that down under point number five. I have confidence of this fact, and it should lead me this week to be courageous for the gospel of Jesus Christ in my neighborhood, in my workplace, with my family and friends. If God is for us, who can be against us? And when we're confident of that, whether we're in a prison cell, or kneel before our executioner, or praying in the church at the prayer meeting, we should have courage to take the gospel to the places that need it most, knowing God will see us through to the end. God is in control. Do you believe it? And do you live in light of it? The believers in Acts chapter 12 did, and my prayer is that we will do the same.